God, one of our greatest uh, dangers in life, and maybe particularly in this season, is to is to grow familiar with uh, miraculous things. And so I pray that you would move us to a place this morning where we um, don't just in a sentimental way encounter songs about Christ or about Christmas, that we would see the, the wonder of it all, uh, that in Jesus, God, you have come to be with us. Thank you that you are with us today at the hope of the gospel for your people is that you are always with us. That Jesus, because you're alive, you're always living, always praying for your people. So there's no word of dismissal that could ever come your way that would dismiss us from your presence if our faith and our trust is in you. So renew our trust and our faith in you this morning. Increase our joy and our love for you, I pray, for your great name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. <clears throat> Well, good morning again. Uh, we can turn the lights up a little bit. It's a little dark in here. Um, you can go to Matthew chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be there again. We're going to look at, uh, we're taking a few weeks to, to unpack the picture of God being with us. And if you were with us last week, we looked at Matthew chapter 1 and kind of pan backward to Isaiah chapter 7 where, where the prophecy comes about this particular child born to a virgin. I want, to, I want us to read Matthew 1, 18 through 25 again. And I'm going to do my best in the time that I have to get through what I have. Um, we're going to take communion together this morning. And if I don't mention it later, because I hate doing it in the moment, every cracker we serve when we take the Lord's Supper is gluten-free. So for some of you, anxiety has just been kind of pushed down. You don't have to worry like in the moment, like do I just trust the Lord with gluten at this moment or not? They're all gluten-free. All right. So with that said, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. We're going to read the same section we did last week. And this is what it says in Matthew's gospel, verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is from Isaiah chapter 7 that we looked at last week. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to his son, and he called his name Jesus. So what I want to do for a moment is I want to, I want to kind of depict, if I can, <clears throat> you can either grab your Bible in hand or not. Um, when you think about this story, I've heard this multiple times over the last few weeks. I have a chance to interact with uh, some of the athletes at UNCW, and um, some of them come from a Christian background, some of them don't. And I've heard multiple times this statement of, like, I just don't know where to start. Like, I don't really understand this book. And the Bible is, in some ways, a very complex book, but in another way, it's actually a very simple book. It's simple in this way, because when you think about the story of the Bible, it really is a story that's centered around this notion of God being with us. 
Because in the very beginning, God created man and woman to be with him, to reflect his image and to worship him and enjoy him and to subdue the earth. And there was unhindered fellowship with, with man, between man and God. And so at the, at the heart of the fall of man, really the earthquake of the effect of the fall is that man can no longer be with God. And so Adam and Eve are pushed out of the garden, which really is symbolic of the nature of our broken relationship with God from that point forward. So the rest of the Bible really is the development of the story of how is God going to allow men and women to be with him again? And so this wording of Emmanuel, God with us, finds, finds us going all the way back to the beginning to answer the question of like, how do we get back to be with God? The very thing that we were created to do and to be, how, how, does, how does this situation get remedied? And the answer is found in Jesus, Emmanuel, this peculiar child born to a virgin, the Lord Jesus, who had come to save his people from their sins. He would be God with us. And so as you look at this story, you find, you find this, like, this angst and longing throughout the Old Testament in particular. And we're going to do a little bit of a flyover this morning. And so we come in at Matthew chapter 1, kind of breaking a season of silence, which I'll get to in just a little bit. And then at the end of our Bible, if you want to go there with me, because I want to highlight this at the beginning, and then we'll go back to it at the end, just really quickly. Go to Revelation chapter 21, because you see that what, what, where we started in the Bible, the beginning of the story of mankind, the story of human history starts with man being with God. And sin breaks that relationship. It's fractured, and man can no longer be with God. And so God, through his promises and his provision, and ultimately through his Son, provides a way for man to be brought back into his presence. And then ultimately, that will be exactly what heaven looks like and means, is that ultimately man gets to be with God once again. In Revelation chapter 21, it says this, Then I saw a new heaven... And a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the city of heaven, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying this, and this is what the thunderous roar of the voice of God at the end of time proclaims. And here's what he says. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with Man, he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And so we find the Bible is really one unified story about, about man created to be with God from the beginning and how sin broke that bond and how God in his kindness does everything required, namely through Jesus, to restore that relationship in the end. And now we live in this little while in between where we sink our hearts into promises. We look backward at promises that once were made and the way Jesus fulfilled those. And then we look forward to promises that we know will one day be fulfilled finally like we just looked at in Revelation chapter 21. And you might find yourself coming in here and maybe what describes you would be that you're, you feel weary. Like long live the world and sin and error pining, a weary world rejoices. Like you hear some of those words, you're like, yeah, that captures how I feel. And I, I want to go back to this sentiment from last week. It's like Christmas really is for the weary. The arrival of Jesus is for the weary, is for the broken. 
It's for the afflicted. It's for the lost and the sinful, those separate from God. Jesus came to be with us. The arrival of Jesus is the arrival of salvation and the assurance that God is with us. And so we see him in, with us in the beginning. Our rebellion pushes him away. And if you're a tea drinker, you know what steeping a tea bag means. It's like the tea bag sits in the heat, in the water, and it begins to color everything around it, begins to taste like it. And, and the Old Testament is a little bit like that. There's a steeping in the Old Testament. It just saturates the Old Testament with this sense of longing and waiting for relief, for comfort, for consolation, and for rescue. So all the Old Testament, its whispers and its foreshadowing points us to this moment where Jesus arrives. And so I want to do a little bit of a flyover of some of these old, this Old Testament picture of this longing and the way in which like even the souls of God's people in the past were secured by this same reality that God is with us. He's with me. And you can look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we see this developed in the book of Genesis, chapter 12. God calls this unique man, Abram, and from his family, and then Abraham, and then Isaac, and Jacob. And from this unique family, God would create this nation, the nation of Israel. And these people, this nation, would be those who are called to represent God in this world. He calls them out unto himself. He says, I'm, I'm going to bless you, and you're actually going to be the source of blessing for every nation. And so he tells Abraham that he's going to be with him. He says, come and follow me. Come out from the land of your family. In Genesis 28, he echoes it to to Jacob, he says, In you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. So you see it in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this unique relationship to God based on promise that God is going to be with this unique family, these descendants. And from them is going to spring one, namely Jesus, who's going to be the hope for every nation. And he's ultimately going to be the one who will be finally with them with his people. You see it in Moses. Sorry about that. In the midst of Moses' profound insecurity, the same promise was there. Moses was used by God to rescue the, the people of God from slavery in Egypt. After 400 years of slavery, Moses, this insecure man, is sent by God to Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler on the face of the earth, to rescue the people of God. Just, he says, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses is like, wait a second, what if he doesn't, what if the people don't listen to me? What if, Mo, what if Pharaoh doesn't listen to me? Like, I'm a, I stammer, I stutter, like, what if I can't speak? All these insecurities and God's anchor of a promise is found in the same words that we see in Emmanuel. He says, I'll be with you. Exodus chapter 3. Verse 12, I'll be with you. This shall be a sign for you that I've sent to you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. He goes on to say, I'll be with your mouth and with Aaron's mouth. I'll speak through you. I will be with you. Be strong. You see that echoed in Joshua. He's the one that takes over from Moses. You probably heard this. You probably sang it in Sunday school if you grew up in the church. Haven't I commanded you be strong and courageous, right? You see it in Joshua chapter 1, verses 5 and 9. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? 
Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So it's notable. In moments of distress and pain and anxiety and loss, ridicule and affliction, the anchor that God gives to his people time and time again is, I will be with you. I will be with you. Don't be afraid. I'll be with you. It's my promise to be with you. You see it with the Israelites in this curious tent that God has them pitch in the wilderness in Exodus. We studied through Exodus years ago. It's been a few years now. There's this unique place where God would actually travel with his people. Like in this particular place, this tent, this temporary temple, God's presence would reside with his people. It's like you're going to set up this place and it's going to be like a dwelling for my presence. And wherever it goes, you're going to go. Wherever you go, it's going to go. I'm going to be with you. And so Exodus chapter 29, verses 42 through 46 is just part of that section. It says, in the tent of meeting, this tabernacle, I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Like so significant is this promise of God being with his people. It was the thing that made them unique from the rest of the world. That God was with the Israelites. And so you see this in, in Moses in chapter 33 of the book of Exodus. He says this, what God says to him first, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses says to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. You hear the angst in that? Like if you don't go with us, I don't want to go. There's no, no place worth going if you're not there. And he goes on to say this, for how shall it be known that I've found favor in your sight, I and your people, is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. Throughout the Old Testament, the uniqueness of the Israelites was found in God being with them, with us, with you, is the promise time and time again. Don't be fearful. You see it in David, one of the most famous poems in all of human history, in Psalm 23. You could probably Recite it just as well as I can. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So in the midst of like the ache of the Psalms and with David, the strength of his heart was that ultimately, even when his son was chasing him to kill him, even when Saul came after him, even in the midst of his own sin and failure, his confidence was in the fact that God had promised to be with him. I will not fear, for you are with me. And our sin and the sinfulness of this world causes us to be tossed to and fro from a place of deep assurance. I will not fear because you're with me. To a place of waiting and wondering and longing. I think we can all kind of identify with that ache. Like we long to be rescued. Some of you are sitting, even this morning, just in a place of uncertainty. 
And I think when you peel back the layers, like in your relationship with God, like your heart longs to understand and know, like how do I know that God is with me? God, are you with me? Are you, are you traveling with me through this? Because it feels like I'm just kind of flying solo because circumstances will do that for you. Your circumstances will tell you a story about whether or not it feels like God is with you. And that's why we have to anchor ourselves in the promises of God. He says, I'll, I'll be with you. Don't fear. I'll be with you. Psalm 119, verse 82, it says, My eyes long for your promise, and I ask, when will you come for me? And you see that time and time again in the Old Testament, this longing of like, we're, we're here and there's difficulty. Like, when are you going to come, Lord? When are you going to comfort us? When is your promise going to come true? But one thing we see throughout the Old Testament leading up to Jesus' arrival is that what happened in Genesis 3 is what continues to happen in our lives and throughout human history. That God in his faithfulness continues to move toward us, seeking to be with us, and we push him away. We send him away. And in our pushing him away, we are sent away from his presence. You see that time and time again in the Old Testament. The people of Israel were conquered by other nations. Like we looked a little bit at that last week in 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles. The nation of Israel, because of their rebellion against God, was overtaken by Assyria and Babylonia and Persia, taken into captivity. Because of their rebellion against God, they pushed God away. And so God says, I'm going to take my hands off, always faithfully preserving a remnant of a people to bring them back. But they were pushed into exile. So you see this in this period called exile. What's really interesting about this, we looked at this a little bit last week. Assyria at first conquers Judah. So ironically, but instructively for us, don't miss this part. When we talked about Ahaz last week, you might remember I talked about how Ahaz sought to form and forge an alliance with an Assyrian king, right? So he, he didn't trust in God, so he looked around him, and Assyria, a powerful nation, seemed to be a wise alliance to protect him versus trusting in God. That was his, that was his choice. But what, what, interestingly, what happens in the, the tale of, well, not the tale, the story of Israel and in Judah is that the very one that Ahaz put his trust in ends up overcoming him and destroying the nation. Isn't that what sin is like? I want to ask you to raise your hand. Like the very thing that we trust in that's not God will be the very thing that seeks to conquer us every single time. Because when our trust isn't in the Lord, and we'll seek to trust in other things. It's just a matter of what. If we don't worship God, our worship will be displaced to other things. And God in his kindness won't share us, and so he'll allow us even to be given over to our own devices and wanderings if it means that he'll bring us back, even confronted with our destruction. And that's a little bit what the exile period was like for the nation of Israel. The things that promised relief and protection, they promoted insecurity. The things that looked like life only brought destruction. You see this in Lamentations chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. Jeremiah says this. He talks about Judah having been overtaken. By Assyria, it says, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. Just think of these like adjectives for a minute. Just apply them maybe to your own heart and life. Rebelling against God, choosing other things, 
This is how Jeremiah describes Judah. He says, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. And in the midst of that deep pain and loss and affliction, being distant from God, we find nestled in it that wonderful peace It says, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. And in part, that's what happens in the return from exile, right? So the people of God and Ezra and Nehemiah, when you look at the history in the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah are the story of a a remnant being restored. So in Ezra, you you have the temple being rebuilt. Nehemiah, you have the walls of Jerusalem being rebuilt. In this unique way, God is with his people, even working through worldly kings to allow that to happen Let me just read a brief picture from Ezra 1. And just remember to keep looking for the words that God is with his people. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, so the people of God were captured by Assyria, then Babylonia, then Persia. So the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Kings are like pawns in the hands of God. So that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So all throughout the Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament, like one thing we should feel is just this ache. It's like the, the people's inability to keep the law of God and follow him faithfully. And that's our story too, right? We can't just disconnect ourselves from that. But it's a wandering people with a faithful God. So he brings them back to worship him again. So in the Old Testament, we see the inability of God's people to fulfill the law, the propensity of the people to go after the gods of the culture and forsake the one true God. We see the perpetual straying of sheep from their shepherd, the perpetual faithfulness of God to his word to preserve a remnant of people who would follow him and whom would be with him. I want you to do something for me real quick. In the middle of your Bible... Well, it's kind of middle-ish. It's really between the two testaments, the two sections of your Bible, old and new. I want you to just kind of symbolic. I think it's maybe page 757, if I remember right. I looked at my, that's the chair Bible. I want you to grab the page right before the book of Matthew. Matthew starts the New Testament. Grab your Bibles if you can. If you got an app, I don't know what to tell you. Just put your finger on your screen somewhere, I guess. And I want you to, I want you to grab this page. Most Bibles are going to have a single page in between old and New Testament. Okay? I want you to put that in your fingers. Oh, wait just a second. 
So one of the things that we see, so when you see the, the biblical history of the people of God, of Israel, end, which is really in Nehemiah. It's the end of the historical line of the Old Testament. What happens next, if you could envision this page in between Nehemiah, as it were, historically, and Matthew, this is 400 years. There's 400 years that most historians would call the silence era. There was an era between the, the two testaments, the, the Old Testament and the arrival of the Messiah, where it was marked by, shh, God didn't, he didn't speak. He didn't speak through prophets. There was an increase in pharisaical religion among the Israelites. You got Greco-Roman culture taking over in the time. And following the end of that 400 years of sorrow, in the midst of that 400 years of silence, not a word from God. For many Israelites, it was a season of intensified waiting. So the waiting and longing you kind of get from the Old Testament was just intensified in this 400 years of silence where God didn't speak. Waiting for spiritual rescue and many anticipated political rescue and then all at once the silence is broken in an unexpected way because it didn't come through the mouth of a prophet. The silence wasn't broken through the speech of a Jeremiah or an Isaiah or Ezekiel. The silence was broken through the cries of a baby, Emmanuel, God with us. God himself in human form comes to speak again. And he speaks through Jesus. And you see this depicted in Hebrews chapter 1. Verses, really, just the verse one I'll read right now just for the sake of time. It says, long ago, if you could kind of take long ago to mean the Old Testament, long ago at many times, in many ways, through many people and many prophets and so many promises, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And the words spoken came from what we see in the beginning of the book of John. God speaks his word through the word. The word made flesh who dwelt among us. The word that was in the beginning with God and the one who was God. He puts on human form. And in John 1, we see that he dwelt among us. That word is literally tabernacle, the same word from Exodus. Where the tabernacle was set up for the presence of God, uniquely to be captured temporarily for the people of God to interact with God. Jesus now tabernacles. He puts on flesh to dwell among his people so that they can see what God is like and so that he can provide a way for them to be with him. Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus came to dwell among us that he might live for us. And this is something that often I think we, we can kind of pass over if we're, not, if we're not careful enough. Like before Jesus had to die for us, let me just personalize. Before Jesus had to die for you, he had to live for you. He came as a man born under the law, Galatians chapter 4. 
so that he could be a man who fulfilled the law. So the very life that you know when you survey your own heart and all of my failed decisions, the very life that I know I can never live, Jesus came that he might live that life for you. He perfectly fulfilled the law in his life. And that's why he was able to go to the cross as a perfect, blameless, spotless substitute. So when he died, he didn't die because he broke the law. He died as a substitute to bear the curse of those who broke the law. And that's what we do when we take communion. We remember the fact that Jesus died in our place. His flesh, the tabernacle of his flesh, pierced for our sins, crushed for our iniquity. I'm going to transition us to take communion now. I've got a few more things to say at the end, but I want to read you a quote by John Piper because I just couldn't improve upon the way that he said it as he talked about the incarnation. As we go to take communion, like it's not just some random add-on to Matthew chapter 1. If God is with us, and Jesus is that witness of God, he's the one who put on flesh and dwelt among us. He put on flesh for the particular purpose to go to the cross. The manger is meaningless without the cross. Like Christmas at best is sentimental without the cross. At worst, it's absurdly strange and meaningless without the cross. But with the cross in view, the manger and the humanity of Jesus becomes richly powerful to us. And let me just read these words from John Piper before I invite you to come up and grab the elements. I think we'll have this up here. He said it this way. He says, The incarnation is the preparation of nerve endings for the nails. The incarnation is the preparation of a brow for thorns to press through. He needed to have a broad back so that there was a place for the whip. He needed to have feet so that there was a place for spikes. He needed to have a side so that there was a place for the sword or the spear to go in. And he needed cheeks, fleshy cheeks, so that Judas would have a place to kiss. And there would be a place for the spit to run down that the soldiers put on him. And he needed a brain and a spinal column with no vinegar and no gall, no relief, that is, so that the exquisiteness of the pain could be fully felt for you. That's what it means for Jesus to put on flesh and dwell among us. He didn't come just for sentimental reasons that you might just know generally that at a moment that God was with us. He came all the way down in the midst of your pain. That's why Christmas is for those in pain, those broken, those isolated, those lost, because he came all the way down to bear the full weight of your punishment through the nails, in the cross, through his flesh, spilling out his blood so you could be forgiven. And that's why we don't take this flippantly because of the work that Christ did. And if, if you have trusted in Jesus, let this be to you just like a f- the feast. You get to come to the table of God, accepted in his sight by no righteousness of your own, 
but through the finished work of Jesus. And all God's people said, you can do better than that. All God's people said, yeah, you come here and you're accepted because of what Jesus did, not because of what you can or will do or have done. You've heard me say it this way time and time again, like we are not qualified because of our best day and thanks be to God, we're not disqualified because of our worst day. That is the message of the gospel. And when you come as a Christian here, you come to just take a little tidbit of a cracker and a little bit of juice to remind you of the fullness of what Jesus has done in your place. And if you're not a Christian in this room, my, my earnest plea to you is that you surrender to Jesus today. Don't rely on tomorrow. In the fullness of time, the perfect time, when you needed it, God the Father sent his son to die in your place and now he commands you and every man on this planet to repent and believe in the work of the son. And if you have done that, come here freely. If you have not, please don't take this. This is an act of remembrance for those who have trusted in him. But our prayer and our plea is that you, you'd make today the day of salvation. Let me ask you just for a minute to bow your head. Maybe just consider for a moment, just Maybe contemplate for a moment just where you might be apart from the grace of God, apart from the work of Jesus. It's good for us to consider the magnitude of our sin, how lost we are apart from Jesus. And for us to remember this, that in order for God to be with us, Jesus had to be abandoned by the Father. In order for God to be with us, Jesus had to mourn and weep. In order for God to be with us, Jesus had to be afflicted and ridiculed. In order for God to be with us, Jesus had to become a curse for us. In order for God to be with us, Jesus had to be wounded and pierced. In order for God to be with us, ultimately Jesus had to die. And he did. He was willing to do it all. He was willing to do everything it took to allow us to be with God. Thank you, Jesus. It's so good for us to be still. It's so good. It's so hard. But it's good for us to, to be still. To be shaken, to be moved by the magnitude of your grace and your love. Gracious are you, God. Thank you. I want to invite you, um, as much as you have surveyed your heart, confessed to God any sin still remaining, the sin you battled even this week, that you just freshly throw it upon Christ again. As you've examined your heart and trusted in Him, and I want to invite you to come up and grab a cracker and a cup. There's a table in the back and in the front, and you can just use the middle and then kind of return back on the sides and we'll take the elements together here 
in just a few minutes. God, we are so grateful that you're trustworthy. And we praise you that your work is sufficient to save us. That you are mighty to save and salvation that you bring, you will complete. I thank you for the beauty of, of this story in your word. That the very thing that you created us for, that we broke through our rebellion, that you have you have made a way for it to be restored, for us to be with you again. That ultimately our our greatest joy will be to be with you. That in the end, our portion is you. You're what we get for all eternity. And so I pray that in some way our hearts would be tuned to sing your praise because there's a way in which in an already not yet sort of way we get we get you now we get to have you now and communion gives us just a little glimpse of that family i'm gonna have you just stand with me as we take the elements together god as we um as we take this this very simple cracker and cup, I pray that it would be to us life and breath and grace and truth once more. Thank you for the work that you have done. Jesus, thank you that, that you were and are a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And surely our griefs you bore. That you were pierced through for our iniquity crushed for our transgression and so this cracker reminds us of the fact that your flesh was broken for us. You who as the word came to dwell among you people you who possessed glory became humble and died on the cross and we take this cracker in remembrance of your body broken for us. Let's take it together. God, were, were we to trust in ourselves, um, the cup of our judgment would never be emptied. It would be poured out upon us for all eternity, uh, but in a miracle of your grace, the judgment that would have taken an eternity to pour out upon us was exhausted on Jesus in a matter of hours So as we take this juice and stare at the empty cup, we thank you that your blood was spilt so that we could be forgiven and there's no more wrath left for us to take. Let's take it in remembrance of that. God, we love you and we want to, I pray, and we need to love you more. You are truly worthy of it all. From you are all things and to you are all things. To you alone be the glory. As we sing this final song, God, would you fill our hearts with a present hope for today and a forward-looking hope for tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen. And before we sing this song, too, I was just reminded of, and we'll, I'll just share this briefly before we sing. 
as I heard your feet moving, like coming to take communion, I was, I was kind of overtaken by that sound. Because um, there, there will be a day, I don't know if I can do this, um, th- there will be a day when the nations, like every tribe and tongue, people group and nation will walk to the throne. Like never to be sad again, like to be fulfilled forevermore. And part of what I want to highlight in that is that it's our responsibility to invite as many people to that moment as possible. So if you have the hope of Christ within you, then I pray we make him known during this season, not just enjoy him. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together.